All right, good morning once again. If you would, there's a pew Bible in front of you. If you would just grab that. I know the bullet, there's a, the text is printed in your bulletin, but grab the pew Bible. It might be a chance for you to uh, make a new friend as you have to share with somebody. But um, open it to Isaiah chapter 50. You'll find that on page 611. We're going to look at the servant song in Isaiah, and that's uh, verses 4 through 11. But we don't have printed in your bulletin verses 1 through 3, and we're going to look at those quickly, shortly after um, we begin our message here. So I want you to have that in front of you. You might just have to keep your thumb in the Bible uh, as we move forward. But I also want to take a moment just kind of as you're looking to find that in there, Isaiah, page 611, Isaiah 50. Um, you guys are there. I don't hear much turning. That's great. You guys are good. I want to kind of remind us as to what these servant songs are. It's been a few weeks since I've been here. I was on vacation. Part of that, we had some other ministers preaching. So we're in a sermon series on the servant songs. There are four of them in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet, prophet of God, lived, prophesied around 740 B.C. to around 700 B.C. And he prophesied during it. Uh, began his prophecy during a time of great prosperity in the nation, but that eventually turned into great turmoil as the people of God were sent into exile into a foreign land. And so Isaiah, uh, towards the end of the book of Isaiah, we see there's four different servant songs. We looked at two of them. Uh, today we'll look at the third. But these servant songs are a picture of God's work through a person that's going to come. And from our vantage point, though, we look and we see, well, he's already come. This is none other than Jesus Christ himself, God's servant. How do we know this? Well, who else could it be, <laughs> for one? And uh, also, we, Jesus identified himself as the servant in Isaiah. And then we also know other passages in the New Testament tell us that this, in fact, is Jesus, the one who fulfills these servant songs. And in, them, in these servant songs, we see a beautiful picture of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's look now um, at Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to read verses 4 through 11. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. 
you shall lie down in torment. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you for this word to us. In some ways, it's uh, comforting and delightful. In other ways, it's challenging. Um, but that's how you are towards us and towards your people. We pray for your grace in this very moment. We pray for your Holy Spirit to enliven our thoughts and, our, and your words upon our hearts that we may know you and, and respond to who you are in the way that is best. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My desire this morning is to challenge each one of us with a question, and that's, that's this. What is it that you cling to? I mean, when the world is pressing in on you, when injustice comes your way, the times which you fall flat on your face in failure, the time you blow it big, the time when your hopes and dreams seem to be unraveling in your hands, who or what do you cling to? When the darkness presses in, Who do you rely on? In our passage here, in verses 4 through 9, it tells us that God has done something for us that we do not deserve. He has sent his servant, his son, into the darkness so that we may trust in him and rely on him. And that's the application of this sermon. We see it in the second part of verse 10. It says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light. By the way, that's all of us. (laughs) Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. God calls us to trust in him and rely on him in the darkness. And yet, isn't it true? He can be the last one we turn to. Verse 11 picks up on this. Instead of trusting and relying on the voice of God in the darkness, humanity prefers to light its own torches. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire. It's if he's saying, go see how that works. And by the torches that you have kindled, this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The servant says that, He will be a trustworthy voice for you in the dark. But if you light your own light, that is, if you come up with your own schemes to get yourself out of the darkness, don't be surprised in the end when you actually end up burning yourself. Into the darkness, God sends his servant, one we can and should trust and rely on, but it is our nature to light our own torches. Christians and non-Christians respond alike to God's grace by by saying, hold on, God, I got this covered. I don't need your help. Just wait a little while. I'll get through this. Are you like that? Maybe you're here this morning and you're and you're not a Christian. And for you, you've never really looked up to heaven. You never really looked to rely and trust on God. For you, you're like saying, even if there is a God, why would I be so sure that he would even care about me? Why would I think he would draw near to me in darkness? And perhaps you're thinking, is there really any other way of living? You know, lighting these torches is second nature to us, right? 
Is there some other way? I kind of get that. I was there once myself. I didn't even believe God exists. I doubted his existence. I encourage you, maybe in this morning would be a time for you to, to lend your ear. Uh, give your, your ear to the voice of God in his scripture here and find him. Most of us here are Christians. We have heard God's words towards us. We've, you've come to Christ in faith in him. But isn't it also true there's a tendency to light your own torches? At times in your life you feel as if God's let you down. And the only way to get out of this is to do something yourself. Instead of patiently calling upon Christ to meet you in your, and guide you by his words, you light your own torch. You rush into that relationship or you rush out of that relationship. You just quit that job or you purposefully underperform in that job. Or you settle for a life of Blaming and complaining. We do this, don't we? This passage speaks to all of us this morning. It tells us that God has graciously acted on behalf of mankind. That he has sent his son into the darkness so that we may experience real help and real hope. And therefore, we must cling to him and rely on him. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to divide our time into three areas. First, we're going to look at the context. That's why, that's why I have your, hopefully your thumb is still, is it, is it in there? Still on Isaiah 50. Now some people are going back to open it up. Page 611. Alright, we're going to read that real quick. That's the context. It's important. Second, we're going to look at the servant. Just kind of who he is, his character, um, and his accomplishments. And then we're going to look at, um, how we're to respond to him. Okay? So first, uh, the context. Before we can even kind of try to fathom why we're to trust and turn to this servant, we need to kind of understand the context of how the servant came into this world. All right, so the context is this. Israel was God's beloved nation. He treasured her. He promised himself to her, but Israel turned from God. As I mentioned before, there was a time of great prosperity. They were, they sought their financial prosperity, which isn't a bad thing, but they, they sought it at the expense of the poor. And they chased after the gods of the other nations. The nation of Israel was looking more like the nations around them than, than by nations that, that knew and walked with her God. And so God, as he promised, rightly spit them out of the promised land. They were in exile in Babylon. They were experiencing darkness as exiles in a foreign land. And they would have felt cut off from God and abandoned by him. Rightly so. They were alone in the dark. And yet we read verses one through three. Here we go. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which one of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressors your mother was sent away. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Somebody like, okay, Mark, explain that to me. (laughs) What does that say in there exactly? All right. Um, Here's what God says to his people in verses 1 through 3. I never abandoned you. You 
left me. How do we see that? He says, he says, go, go find the divorce certificate whereby which I divorced your mother. What do you see there? Who's to blame? Not me. Oh, you feel like you feel like someone who's been sold off to pay off a debt. That's what they would do back then. You'd sell off your kids to pay off a debt. All right. Uh, some of you are looking at your credit card bills going, hmm, wow, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> he, 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 he's, he's saying, well, did I sell you off to pay off some debt? He says, take a moment to think how silly that is. Who on earth does God Almighty owe anything? So stop your pouting and your blame shifting. Take the smelling salts and you will find that I never abandoned you. You abandoned me. And that's the situation in which they find themselves in this foreign land. It's their own doing. It's not God's failure. Which should cause us to think, too. At times when the darkness presses in on us, God is not to blame. When the darkness closes in on us, it's, sometimes it's the result of others' sins against us, and other times it's the result of our own sin within us. But God is never to blame. In fact, he's actually our only hope <laughs> In the midst of the darkness that we find ourselves in, in which we're t- tempted to blame God for. That's what he's saying here. I hope you see this. God didn't just simply rebuke his people in exile so he could take their faces and rub their noses in, in what they had done. He wants them first to see that it wasn't him that abandoned them. And he does that so that they would turn back and turn to him. This is a gracious work of God in the lives of his people who have left him. And he says to them, is my hand shortened that it cannot be redeemed? Do I not have the power to deliver you? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, my arm's not too short. I have the power to redeem. The Lord challenges them and he challenges us to trust in God's willingness and in his power to redeem a people who do not deserve redemption. That's the context in which this servant begins to speak. You see why that's important? Let's look at the servant. Who is he? His character? What's his accomplishments? The fundamental question that we should be addressing him, be thinking about is this. What is it about this servant of God that should cause me to thrust my life entirely upon him? And the answer is this. Perhaps you've heard me say something along these lines before. Here's what the servant has done. Here's what Jesus has done. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. Jesus died the death that you deserve. So that by faith in him, you may have a new life you don't deserve. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death that you deserve. So that by faith in him, you may have the new life you do not deserve. That's how we're going to break this down here this morning. First, Jesus lived the life he should have lived. He lived in perfect obedience and devotion. First, perfect devotion. Whereas Israel stopped listening to God and departed from him, not so Jesus, not so Christ. Look at verse 4. The Lord God has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. 
How many of you guys still listen to, uh, like, the radio in your car? Anybody still do that? You got those, okay, young people, too. All right. And you got these preset buttons, right? Do you do what I do? You're like, you keep pushing the button until you hear a station that, like, satisfies you, right? That's just kind of how it is. The picture we have here, the image that we have here in our text, is, is that the servant has only one preset station. His entire, uh, his station is preset to the voice and to the teaching of the Lord God Almighty. His life is so captivated by the words of God, by the teaching of God, um, that it sustains him. And is that not what the word of God does? It sustains those who feed on it. Unlike Israel and unlike you and me, Jesus lived in perfect communion with the Father. You remember the story when he was 12 years old? You can read about it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. When he was 12 years old, the whole family, his whole entire family and all his neighbors uh, left and went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's a huge entourage. And they're hanging out in Jerusalem for the entire weekend, all right? It's a giant feast and festivities. And then they return back, and what happens? They for, they, no one checked to see if Jesus was with them, right? Little Jesus, 12 years old, all right? And, um, they, and they scratch their heads, and they come running back to Jerusalem, and they look for him, and, and they find him in the temple. And here's what we see in Luke. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He was at the temple. Understand this. A Jewish boy, when he's 12 years old back in those days, that was a transitional year for a Jewish boy. He transitioned from being under the, from the discipline uh, and the teaching uh, of the household in which his mother was leading him. He transitioned to that of being disciplined under the apprenticeship of his father in his father's workplace. This is what Jesus was going through. And his work place on earth was a carpenter's house, of course, but his heavenly father is his true father. And where did he find himself? In the temple, attentive to his father, to be taught and trained and discipled by his heavenly father. Morning by morning, Jesus was awoken and sustained by the life-giving words of his heavenly father. And check this out. What does this enable him to do? The text says that the servant knows how to sustain him uh, with the word, him who is weary. Perhaps this caused you to remember that time when Jesus spoke to a large crowd and he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was perfectly devoted to his heavenly father. And because of this, he's able to be perfectly devoted to you and your weary soul. Not only was he perfectly devoted, he was also perfectly obedient. Verse five, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not back. Jesus was unlike Israel. He's unlike us in that he lived on earth in perfect obedience. Jesus always, always did the will of his heavenly father. Even when God spoke things into his ear, things that were hard, things that seemed impossible, Jesus said, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus lived the life we should have lived in devotion and in obedience. We also see that he died the death that we deserve. He he gave himself to be struck on our behalf. Jesus willingly went to the cross uh, to bear our sins upon himself. We see this referred to in verses 6 and 7. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 
But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Most scholars here uh, say that this language brings to mind here the suffering of Jesus Christ. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts towards the end of each gospel, we see the suffering of our Lord and Savior. Just for instance, in Matthew 26, we read, they spit in his face and struck him. And some of them slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And a few verses later, Pontius Pilate took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. How ironic. Jesus's blood is on us. It's on us either to condemn us or to cleanse us. Reject Christ and his blood condemns you. Believe in Christ and his blood cleanses you. Well, I hope we see not only did he offer himself on the cross for us, but he did this willingly. Instead of saying that these men beat me, what is what does the servant say? He says, I gave my back to those who would strike me. He says he offered up his face. Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter two. Where he writes that Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It wasn't an accident that Jesus ended up on the cross, nor was it a mishap. He went to the cross willingly. And think about this. Consider all the morning by mornings in which the Heavenly Father spoke into the ear of Jesus. Do you think he just spoke like, Happy, easy things to Jesus. Things like, son, today is going to be a great day for you. I hope you have a fun time on earth. Be safe and be happy. Isn't that kind of how we pray? God, thanks for this day. Keep me and my family safe and happy. We read the, and prayed the Lord's Prayer earlier. Nowhere in there though, are we to pray for, to be safe and happy. We pray what? For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that he keeps us from temptation. And we pray that he would deliver us from evil. Quite a difference from praying for safety and fun. Back to Christ. Consider this. At some point, as the father woke him repeatedly in the morning and spoke to him, it became more and more clear that his purpose was to go to the cross and to die. His ear was opened up to that reality. But the text here says he was not rebellious and he turned not backwards. 
Christians, how often have you heard in an intimate time of prayer or through studying of Scripture, you hear God speaking to you and he's calling to you to some radical new level of obedience to him. And in the moment you say yes, but then later you turn your back. Not so our Lord, not so Jesus. He pondered the cross in the presence of his father. It horrified him. And yet he was obedient even unto death, death on a cross. He did this for your sake, not for his own sake. He did it for his father's glory as well. A good question to ask then is then what gave him this confidence to do this? Verse 7 tells us that this servant had complete confidence in God's help. Look at what it says. It says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He, Jesus knew that his abusers would heap insults and ridicule and mock him. He knew that he would be crucified as an innocent man. But he knew in the end he would not be disgraced in his father's eyes. And all of this allows Christ to do what? The text says he set his face like a flint to go to the cross. Luke records similar words where he says when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew exactly how costly we were going to be to him in going to the cross. He knew it was going to he knew it would cost him his very life. He knew it was going to be messy and painful. The thought of going there was utter darkness to him. Yet he followed the path marked out for him. He moved on towards Jerusalem, setting his face like a flint. Now, a flint is a, is a hard, sedimentary rock that when you strike it with steel or some other hard object, it can create a spark and you can, can create a, a flame from it. Setting your face like a flint means that you are expecting opposition. To set your face like flint means that you regard these difficulties as necessary. And that you plan ahead of time to stand firm in the face of adversity. Jesus had countless opportunities to abandon God's cause for him. And yet he was unwavering in every step he took. His disciples, he told them he was going to suffer. What did they do? They, they, they created an alternate path for him. They pleaded for him to choose an easier way. And yet Jesus was steadfast in achieving God's will for him up until the very end when he said, it is finished. So far we've seen that Jesus lived the life he should have lived and he died the death that you deserve. Now let's see the, the result of his work. The result is that by faith in him, you may experience the life you don't deserve. Christ rose in vindication of new life. And so too, all of you who turn and trust in him, rise with him in vindication and in newness of life. Verse 8 and 9, we see the innocent servant, though condemned by the world, he's vindicated by the only person whose judgment counts, right? By Lord God Almighty. Look at verse 7. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? That's like, that's like, who will agree with me? Who will stand up with me? He says, yes, let us stand up together. And then he turns to those, though, he says, but who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. You need to hear something. Behold, the Lord God Almighty helps me. You need to know that. 
And so who of you will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. There's great confidence here that the servant will not be put to shame, that, that his perfect sinless life will be vindicated. God who vindicates is near. He will be cleared. And those who oppose him, they're the ones who actually wear out like a garment. Moths will eat them. They will be, he will be vindicated and they will be judged. Next week we're going to see in greater detail that Jesus didn't die alone for himself on the cross. He died as a representative of all who placed their trust in him. On the cross, Jesus took our place. And therefore, out of the grave, as he rose in vindication, so too we rise with him, vindicated in our lives by virtue of our faith in him. If you trust in Christ, his vindication becomes your vindication. And here on earth, perhaps people will mock you and ridicule and heap insults upon you. And guess what? Maybe sometimes they're justified. Maybe you were a jerk. Maybe you were insensitive. Maybe you were selfish. But maybe they mock you because maybe you're becoming more and more like Jesus. And so just like him, you receive the, the mockings and the, and the jokes and the ridicule and the suffering that your Savior has endured. Whatever reason you experience these things, you need to know that in God's eyes, you have been vindicated. You have Christ's life, you have Christ's death, and you have his resurrection pleading your innocence. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 8, Amazing words towards the end. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and check this out, who indeed is interceding for us. Your faith in Christ delivers into your life, into your hands, the life that you do not deserve. It's all God's grace to you. And we need his grace to receive his grace. My friends, your greatest need isn't a happy life. Your, your greatest need isn't a fulfilling career. Your greatest need isn't to have that special someone to share all those special somethings with. I'm not saying that those things can't be good when God brings them into your life. But your, your, your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. The God who made you, knit you together. The God in, whom, in whose hands are the keys to life. The God to whom we've been rebelling against. He, he calls out, he says, was it my fault that you're away from me? No, but now come to me. I sent my servant so you may experience all this. It's a call to faith. It's a call to believe. So will you... 
contend with Christ? Will you stand in faith with him or will you endeavor to continue lighting the torches of, uh, and lead yourself in the darkness? Those are the those are the two responses. Let's look at our response. When we look at this servant and we see that how Jesus fulfills all this. Hopefully you've come to see that you can't just like Jesus, right? Uh, Tim Keller has this quote, and he's got like this, I don't know how he has this Keller Twitter account. I don't think he does. I think somebody else does it. Every day they tweets out these Kellerisms, right? Yes, a couple days ago, there was this one that says, Jesus, Keller says, Jesus cannot simply be liked. You either kill him or crown him in your life. You can't simply like him. You either kill him or you crown him. On my, when, I, when I retweet something, it shows up on my Facebook page and somebody says, but, all right, so I'm having a hard time here. Should I really like this? <laughs> on your face, get it? Say, ah. You'd be liking the comment, not necessarily, right. All right. Here's the deal, though. Jesus cannot simply be liked. You either kill him or you crown him with your life. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a nice guy who died a a mishap, an accident. He came and purposely came and lived for you and died for you. You either will crown him or you will kill him by how you respond to him. You see the the importance here of what we're talking about? There's only two options. We see them in verse 10 and 11. Those who fear the Lord and obey the voice of his servant and those who don't and instead try to trust their own fires to light in the dark world. Which one are you? Before you get hung up on this fearing the Lord thing, to fear the Lord's a good thing. Uh, a healthy fear of heights keeps you from falling off a cliff, Right? A healthy fear of God actually causes you to draw near to the one who gives you life. You were made for God, by God, for him and for his glory. The gospel allows you an opportunity to return to that state of being. It's a free offer of God's grace to you. To, to say, I'm done lighting my own torches. I'm done finding my own way in darkness. I'm done, I'm done puffing myself up as the man who's going to deliver my family. And I'm going to trust in the Lord and listen to him and be guided by him. You either come to Christ and crown him or you separate yourself from Christ and kill him. His blood is upon you. It's upon you either to cleanse you or to condemn you. I'm sorry. There's no good news without the bad news, right? If Jesus came to save us, what did he come to save us from? His own words here as a servant says, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. My friends, a life lived saying no to God gets you your wish for all eternity. That's what he's saying here. But for those... For those who stand up and contend with Christ, for those who bow a knee in humble obedience, there's triumph. My belief is that that's what most of us have chosen and we've given ourselves. Most of us here, we've crowned Christ in our lives, haven't we? 
His blood has done its cleansing work. We love him and we seek to honor him. Our application is pretty simple. We've heard it. Trust him and rely on him. It sounds simple, but it's kind of hard. What it looks like is, is us looking towards Christ and drawing near to him, listening to him and obeying him. Let me walk you through this real quick. When we find ourselves in dark seasons of life, what are we often tempted to do? We're tempted to doubt God and grab the matchbook. <laughs> you know, we're tempted to doubt God and then light a torch and head for the exit. But consider this. Maybe, maybe God has allowed this darkness to enter into your life so that he may find you there. Maybe the one place God wants to come meet you is in the middle of your darkness. The one thing he wants for you to experience, you're avoiding. Lighting a torch and moving out is like saying, ah, that, God, I'll meet you later when everything's okay. That is why fearing God is right. If we miss him in the darkness, who's to say we will ever find him in the light? So instead of lighting torches to get you to that safe, happy life, remind yourself that you belong to God. That he is your heavenly father, that he is not the author of darkness and suffering, but he does allow it into your life to use it for his good purposes and so that he may find you in the midst of it. And he does this to make you more like Jesus Christ. After doing that, then you need to pause and reflect Is this darkness that I'm experiencing the result of my sin in my life? Is it? And if so, repent. And if not, usually there's always some of your sin in there somewhere, right? If not, you need to remind yourself that even as Christ was without sin and yet suffering came upon him, so too those who walk in Christ's footsteps. The path that he endured, we too have to endure as well. And therefore, then the next step is to to give him your ear. The passage says here that Christ is able to sustain with a word him who is weary. Do you believe that? We often so much demand light in order to get us out of darkness. But what if God pledges something better? His voice in the darkness. You notice this text doesn't say, stop making your own light and God will give you light. No, it says, stop making lights to get out of the darkness and listen to the voice in the darkness. Hear it and obey. We hear his voice in scripture. We hear it in our prayers as we pray through scripture. May we be awakened morning by morning to to the words of God. May they transform us and sustain us. Not only were to hear, though, we're to obey. It's easy to listen, but it's a far difficult thing to obey the words we hear. Remember, Jesus said these words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. If we're to hear his voice, we must also obey. There is never a time in your life where there isn't something in your life that God doesn't want to change. I think that's kind of weird. Let me put that in a positive way. There is... Always something in your life that God desires to change so that you can be more like Christ. Always. And it's true. 
But this is why it makes it so hard for us to, to, to walk in the darkness, because often we see our own shortcomings, we see our own failings. But the gospel allows us to look at our shortcomings, to look at our failings, and it allows us to repent and to change. But hearing those words that we need to change, that sounds a lot like suffering. It sounds a lot like a cross. It sounds a lot like darkness. Who wants to go there? Well, you will go there if God promises to meet you in the midst of it. So we're to repent. We're to seek his changing in our lives. And we're to do it in such a way that we set our faces like flint to see it accomplished. I think that's what it means when, when the servant says that we're to rely on his God. Like Christ, we're to have confidence, though, that though living life in this dark world is, is full of suffering and hardship and is very much like a cross, his words to us tell us that, as we read, the Lord God helps us. We will not be disgraced. We will not be put to shame. We're able to set our faces like flint. Why? Because the one who vindicates is near. That's our comfort. That's our confidence. Tell me, does not this way of living sound heroic? Living a a life of complete devotion and admiration to the the servant king who who loves you and, and, and gave his life for you. The servant king who says, do my father's will. The servant king who says, yes, it's hard. It's difficult, but it's good. I will find you in the midst of it. That sounds triumphant. That sounds brave heartish. That sounds like something that should desire us to cause and champion and contend with Christ. I want to do this. So let the people who hand us the torches of a safe, happy life, let them walk that way. Let us not grab the torches of, of scheming and planning, but, but let us instead, those of us who, who love our Lord and trust in him, let us, let us hear his voice. Let us trust in him. Let us, let us rely on him and let us contend with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, you challenge us. You, you do not let us rest in comfort. Uh, out, of, out of your goodness towards us, you, you show us a better way, a heroic way, a way in which we set our, our faces like flint to live for you and for your glory, knowing, knowing that in your kingdom there's no such thing as, as failure or shame, but rather in Christ we are vindicated. I pray this reality would come upon us. I pray for those here who walk through these doors kind of thinking Jesus was a nice guy. I pray that you would, you would challenge them to see that, that Jesus um, can be nice, but really in his hands are held judgment and death as well. I pray that you would help them to trust in Christ. For those of us who do rest in Christ, I pray that you would remind us more and more of your love for us, Jesus, what you've done for us and your care for us, that we are vindicated, that we may live for you. Uh, We pray this in your name. Amen.